Every family has its own particular culture and its own values. Some families are husky families. Others are cougars. I got some looks. Some families like to exercise together and others like to not exercise together. Some families are indoorsy, others are outdoorsy, some are musical, others athletic, some are Baptist, some are Lutheran. Families are many and married, and not just in those ways, but all families have different secrets, different histories, things that are just not talked about, things that are talked about way too much. There are things that kids learn from a very early age in their family that are explicitly talked about, that aren't explicitly talked explicitly talked about, but they know aren't okay to do within their family, right? They just learn it from the culture of the family. They also know from a very young age what's important in their family. Families have a very strong influence over us. No one wants to disappoint grandma. No one wants to have their place in the family jeopardized. And so we typically, as far as we're able, play by the unwritten rules. And if it's true today, in 2019, in the United States of America, where we have more freedoms and liberties than most throughout history, it was most certainly true for the folk in the first century. The culture of status then was very strong. One person's actions could not only potentially upset a grandparent, but actually bring down the status of the rest of the family. <clears throat> and daughters could be killed, stoned to death, if they jeopardized the reputation of the family. It was life and death. And because of the precariousness in the community, behavior was very, very controlled. So for Jesus to suggest that folk hate their family to embrace the way of God was beyond challenging and an affront to the foundation of their society, and possibly even deadly. For us, it's just hard, right, to hear that. It's like, uh, I really don't want to hate my mom. Jesus, this is weird. But God, through Moses and other prophets throughout history, has reminded people over and over again of the only real allegiance that we should have when it comes to embracing life that is life. And that is choosing to hold fast to God. <clears throat> choosing to hold fast to God, as our Deuteronomy text puts it, is the choice between life and prosperity or death and adversity. We know that this is not an if-then equation because we're good Lutherans, and we know that God doesn't work like that, right? We know that we do not earn a prosperous life, just like we don't get punished with an adversarial, li advers adversarial life for sinning. Can't even say it. That's how good of a Lutheran I am. Instead, this is a map to navigating the life that we have been gifted. If we live in a way that embraces God, we will live into what we were made to be in our most deepest self. And that's a miraculous gift. And it is embracing life. On the other hand, if we choose 
to pursue emptiness and pursue the things of this world and try to hold on so tightly to everything else and not God, things are not going to turn out well for us. It doesn't affect our belonging to God, but it does affect our journey. Meanwhile, in our lectionary package this morning, Paul wrote to Philemon regarding embracing a life of freedom by throwing out the old ways of doing things. More specifically, Paul urged Philemon to set his slave, Onesimus, free. And not just free, but to accept him as an equal in Christ. For Philemon, this would have been a very challenging ask. It looks like, from from the letter, that Philemon wasn't able to go and help Paul, so he sent his slave, Onesimus, to help Paul. And in that process... Paul, as he was growing in the love and knowledge of Jesus, realized that it was not okay to own another human being. And he saw Onesimus, as the scripture says, as his own heart. Slaves were really valuable, and um, for Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom would be uh, losing a major investment for him and for his family. Philemon was directly benefiting from owning another human being. But Paul reminds him, that is not the way of God. It never has been and never will be. August this year marked the 400th anniversary of the first slave ship that came to North America. Our own country was founded and prospered on the backs of the enslaved. So most of what we have in our culture came from that in one way or another. Slavery and its descendants, racism and white supremacy, must be traded in for love and equality in Christ. This message is still true for us today. And Paul reminded Philemon that his first loyalty is not to his family or to his investment, but to God and the ways and mandates of God. Choose life that you might live. All three passages this morning, our gospel with the weird hate your mom stuff, our Old Testament passage about choosing to embrace God, and our epistle that speaks to setting what we hold dear free, even if that means losing out so that we can honor the humanity of others, are all about this choice. Embrace God or don't. Embrace God and see really amazing things, or don't, and see what happens then. It sounds kind of scary, doesn't it? Like there's two ways, and if we, if we choose the wrong way, we'll be messed up, and we'll be you know, in trouble forever. But that's not the way of the economy of God. Thank goodness we have a choice every single day. And I like to think of it in these terms. If we're trying to hold on to our families, for example, our, or our wealth, or our reputations, or our proclivities. Uh, and, and we're holding on so tightly, we don't really have the space to hold on to God. And if these things are a gift from God, then there's no reason for us to hold on to them in the first place. I like to think of it, and I think I've used this example before, is you know when you're holding a baby and they're holding on really tight? And that chubby little fist, if you <laughs> drop them, that chubby little fist is not going to hold them on to you, Right? It's just going to drop. That's us when we're holding on to the things in this world. These chubby little fists aren't going to hold on to anything on their own. 
If things are a gift from God, then they are. And I am invited, and you are invited, to embrace God and allow those gifts to be and encounter them as such. If we are holding on to anything in our lives as though we cannot lose it, things are not going to turn out well for us. This is very, very, very hard. And I think that's why Jesus used that hate language that's so weird for us to hear about hating, hating our families. Because it wasn't enough for him to just say, let go of your family. He had to use that visceral term so there was no question of priorities. You must let go of your family if you are to do God's will. That doesn't mean that we cut ties with our family. It doesn't mean that we don't care for our family. It means that we look at our families for what they are, and that is a gift from God. One that cannot be held on to. One that is not lost if our chubby little hands let go. And if we want to honor that gift, then we are invited to cling to God above all else. If we want to be able to enjoy and love and embrace our families, we must understand that serving God is our deepest identity. It doesn't make us bad family members. It makes us better mothers, spouses, brothers, and grandparents, because suddenly our family is not our deepest identity. It's in God. And let's be honest, that lets us all off the hook. Maybe a, a cougar child could go to the University of Washington. <laughs> but this is where... <laughs> This is where those family cultures, and you know, huskies and cougars, that doesn't matter, but the cultures that tend to try to control and divide can be healed and moved past. If we're holding on to God and holding family loosely, trusting God with it, we can allow our family members to change. Wouldn't that be amazing? We can allow them to grow and be who they are without fear of how it might reflect on us or others. We can let go and, and allow ourselves to change and grow because of how much, um, how much God has first loved us and made us to be in our deepest identity, embracing God's love. This is risky business. Some of you know that firsthand, that if you tell the truth about yourself and let go, that some folk in your family will not take kindly to it. I have people in my family who have rejected me for the ways that I have lived into God's truth for me. And it's hard and painful, even if we are clinging to God above all else, to experience the rejection of family. But living in God's truth and life are worth it. And most often when our family members reject us, it is not about us. It is about them and between them and God. And so we cling to God and allow them to have their own journey. Suddenly, when we hold fast to God and not our wealth, for example, as the scripture also says, we can feel a loosening of anxiety and a greater sense of generosity as we know that we are safe because our identity does not lie in our material wealth but in our faith in God. Suddenly, when we're able to see the ways of God as higher than our own self, sense of getting ahead, we can make bold choices that set others free and make the world a more equitable place. So my question for y'all this morning, my siblings in Christ, 
What are you holding on to? It's different for all of us. You are given a choice. You are not forced to live in the way of God. Your salvation does not depend on it. But your ability to walk with freedom and God's love does. God is not going to force you to stop obsessing and controlling and holding tight to the things in your life. But guess what? Your chubby little fist can't hold on to it anyway. Embrace the gift of this life. Let the things that you can't hold on to anyway go so that you might cling to God above all else and that you might live in the way that you were meant to, in a life full of deep peace, non-judgmental love, and powerful compassion. Try it. I think you'll find that your grasp had nothing to do with the goodness that surrounds you and that it was actually authored by the grace of God from the beginning. I think you will, be found, you will find that you have been held all along. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Mark Anthony Solis died on Tuesday at 37 years old. He was not sick. He wasn't in an accident of any kind. He died by lethal injection at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville for murdering a woman while on a crime spree in 2010. His last words as the lethal dose of drugs entered his body was to the family of the woman he killed. He turned his face to them and said, I hope y'all forgive me. Solis was glad that the family of Nancy Weatherly, whose life he took almost a decade ago, was present at his death. He said, I'm glad I got a chance to talk to y'all. After speaking to the hurt and pain he caused, he spoke to his own inner transformation and finally said, I am at peace and I go with a humble heart. There is no doubt that Solis did a terrible thing when he killed Weatherly, but his words as he died, as I read this week in the Skagit Valley Herald, they struck a chord in me. Solis had an IQ just five points higher than what is generally considered to be intellectually disabled. Uh, he had this um, IQ deficiency because of complications from fetal alcohol syndrome, which means that his mother drank so much while she was pregnant that he had irreversible brain damage. I cannot imagine the horrors that he endured as a child that would cause him to live in such a reckless, violent, and hopeless way. And somehow, after that terrible childhood and violent, um, terrible adulthood, he reached peace at the last. In our training for our One Parish, One Prisoner program, which is our um, opportunity to accompany an inmate as they are being released and give them community and a safe place to land when they are released so that they have a chance at not bouncing back into incarceration, we watched a video for our training. 
Um, this video was created by Homeboy Industries, which is an incredible ministry out of California that does wonderful work in the rehabilitation and healing of folks who have been incarcerated. And in this video, they spoke of the deep trauma that many who turn to crime have experienced as children. Many of folk who are in prisons or have been in prison watched violence in their home from their earliest memories, witnessing and experiencing domestic violence, sexual assault, and substance abuse. One of the men in this video was speaking about hearing all of these stories at Homeboy Industries, and, and a light bulb went off for him. And he said, these people that have these horrifying childhoods that go from horrifying childhoods to troubled young adulthood to incarceration, I realized that these folks don't need a second chance. They need a first chance. They've never had a chance in their life. I don't know the details of Solis' childhood, but if his mother was drunk most of his pregnancy and he felt hopeless enough to hurt someone to the point of death, I think the missing pieces are probably pretty ugly. I think that he probably got his first chance right as he died to reach out in love and healing to those he hurt. I hope y'all forgive me. Today we read of the people of Israel messing up big time in the wilderness by creating a golden calf to hope on instead of putting their trust in God. The folk who did this were people who had been, remember, recently liberated from generations of slavery. And they were scared, and they were a new place, in a new place, and they were in a strange predicament where their leader, who they had trusted, took off for weeks. They felt lost, hopeless. They wanted something tangible to hold on to, Maybe you could relate. So they melted down all of their most precious belongings and treasures, and they poured it and formed it into a symbol that they could hope on. It wasn't God. It was just something to try to grasp. God, although frustrated with their lack of faith, ultimately showed them mercy because it is it is who God is and what God does. Today in our epistle, we have the testimony of Paul, of what he once was, which, by the way, is far worse than most, most people that populate our prisons today. Because Paul, formerly known as Saul, was a murderer of Christians. He was a prolific killer and stalker of, the, of that new faith community in the first century. He was zealous for the cause of keeping his faith undefiled from this newfangled heresy inspired by Jesus, and he killed to keep it pure. And in his letter, Paul reminds Timothy of this. I was a terrible human being. I did unspeakable things, things I never should have been forgiven for. But thank God for mercy. Today's gospel is a troubling series of stories about losing and finding. It's really, it was really troubling to those listening at the time because there were some things that didn't quite resonate. For one, 
Generally speaking, in the first century, there was an acceptable percentage of loss of 15% for a shepherd. So a shepherd would never go find the one if the 99 needed to be kept safe. That would never happen. That would be considered reckless. And yet Jesus likens God to a reckless lunatic shepherd who would do anything to find one lost sheep. Because to God, there are no acceptable losses. Our God is a, is a lunatic, reckless, amazing shepherd who will do anything to find and gather lost folk. Then in our gospel, we see a woman who lost a coin. Who would have, that would have been weird for a couple reasons of people listening in the first century. For one... You don't just, like a woman wouldn't have lost a coin and then gone and told her neighbors that she was so irresponsible that she lost a coin that would not have looked good on, on, um, to her. So she would not probably have gone and proclaimed that. But then in addition to that, she took this coin that she finally found, which was not a quarter or a silver dollar, but worth a whole day's wages. And then she turned it into a party for her neighbors. She spent essentially two coins on a party after losing the one. God is merciful and does not look at people as worthless or throwaway, but instead goes the distance that we might be found, and then upon finding us, throws an extravagant party that seems like it's worth more than we are to begin with, of grace and love and forgiveness. What is lost is now found. God gives us our first and forever chance with God's grace. Thank goodness we have this incredible the a theology as Lutherans of God's grace and love always coming down. There is zero acceptable loss here, y'all. We all belong. We have messed up. You know I'm talking to you. We have put our trust in things that do not deserve our trust. We have acted in violence and selfishness, and we have been utterly lost. But no matter how far we've gone, we are found in God. I wonder on this rainy Sunday morning if y'all believe that about yourselves. If you believe that you are found in God, do you feel found? Do you feel seen by the Most High? I wonder if you can, like Paul, own up to the worst thing you've ever done and believe in God's mercy. Can you, like the ancient wandering Israelites, step away from the concrete things that have given you so much comfort, false comfort, and instead trust God with your future? Can you believe that no matter what, God would come to find you just because you are precious, beloved, and that losing you to hopelessness is unacceptable? Do you believe that? 
this morning? Can your heart let it in? I hope that you can because it is true. You are beloved of God and God's grace and love and forgiveness always comes down to you. And the really amazing thing about this is that in the economy of God, it doesn't stop there. When we embrace and know this to be true, we are transformed to bring that same message to others. If we have the humility of heart to accept this for ourselves, there is no way we can't imagine it for others. We get to seek others and heal and embrace them in that same grace and love. And a bunch of beloved, grace-given folk walking in the world is unstoppable. The suffering in this world is great. Young people are being incarcerated before they even hear the message that they could have value or worth. And only getting their first chances on their deathbeds using their very last words to speak love. Children are in detention at our nation's border. They're young people who have never known what it's like to live in peace. They've never slept through the night without bombs or guns going off. There are smart, accomplished elders right this minute who are starting to lose control of their minds as they slide into dementia. Just today, 123 people, precious children of God, will commit suicide because they feel so lost to hopelessness and depression. Scientists tell us that we have about 11 years to combat climate change before we see cataclysmic loss for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, and the incredible world that we get to live in. Things look bleak. The world needs beloved children of God standing up in the hope that we have been given and walking in God's love and grace. My favorite poet, Jan Richardson, entitled this poem, Blessing, about the blessing that we can become when we risk stepping out on that love. She writes, now more than ever, let us be the ones who will not turn away. Let us be the ones who will go farther into the wreck and deeper into the rubble. Let us be the ones who will enter into the places of devastation beyond belief and despair beyond our imagining. And there let us listen for the spirit that brooded over the formless darkness and there let us look again for the God who gathered up the chaos and began to create. Let us be the ones who will give ourselves to the work of making again and to the endless beginning of creation. God does not give up on us. We have been embraced by the hope of the God who has no acceptable losses and will stop at nothing to find lost ones. May we be found, beloved children of God, bringing grace, healing,
healing, mercy, and love wherever we go. Amen. Let's sing together, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. The words will be on the screen, and it's 